Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and the producer of our dope theme music. You may recall, faithful listeners, that it wasn't even two months ago that we had Dan Pfeiffer, along with his sidekick, Alyssa Master Monaco, here on the podcast with us. And if you do recall that, you'll likely also remember that our conversation just happened to take place on the last Friday in June, June 24th to be precise, a day that will forever live in infamy as the day on which the United States Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade. And because of the earth-shaking momentousness of that decision, we naturally ended up spending most of the show talking about abortion and abortion politics, and justifiably so. But what that meant was that we did not spend much time, or really any time, talking about a topic I was much looking forward to chopping up with Dan. His new book, Battling the Big Lie, How Fox, Facebook, and the MAGA Media are Destroying America. And so pretty much as soon as we wrapped, I reached out to Dan and asked if he'd come back on the show so we could give the book its proper due. And Dan, being both gracious and your typical author in bookselling mode, readily agreed, which brings us to our episode this week in which we go deep on the subject at the heart of battling the big lie, the vast right-wing disinformation and propaganda machine that has become the dominant fact of the information ecosystem in which our politics live. Pfeiffer is, without question, one of the country's sharpest observers and students of that ecosystem, as well as one of the most prominent and influential participants in it. Longtime Democratic strategist, whose resume included stints with Al Gore's 2000 presidential campaign, the Democratic Governors Association, former South Dakota Senator Tim Johnson, and Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle, also former Indiana Senator and Governor Evan Bayh. All of that before Pfeiffer emerged as one of the key players on Barack Obama's all-star team, serving as communications director on the 2008 campaign, and then the White House, where after the 2012 re-election campaign, he was promoted to the august position of senior advisor to the president for strategy and communications, the post previously occupied by two dudes you might have heard of, David Axelrod and David Pluff. Pfeiffer left the White House in 2015, moved to the West Coast, took a job in Silicon Valley working for GoFundMe, and shortly thereafter took the plunge into podcasting. Teaming up in 2016 with fellow Obama refugees John Favreau, John Lovett, and Tommy Vitor to produce a podcast called Keeping It 1600, which... After the holy shit, what the fuck, my God, we're all doomed election of Donald Trump in 2016, morphed into what is arguably the most successful political podcast of all time, Pod Save America. In Dan's ample spare time, LOL, he knocked out the New York Times number one bestseller, Yes, We Still Can, Politics in the Age of Obama, Twitter, and Trump in 2018. He followed that up with another bestseller, Untrumping America, a plan to make America a democracy again in 2020. And just to make the rest of us feel like totally indolent piece of shit, Dan's first child was born a month before the first book was published, and his second child the year after the second book was published, a performance that makes me exhausted just talking about it. In the introduction to Battling the Big Lie, Pfeiffer states his thesis and his purpose plainly, quote, this book is about how disinformation and propaganda became the dominant Republican political strategy, how it works, what it means, and how Democrats can fight back. And in our talk, Dan had fascinating things to say about both sides of the political street, how the GOP hasn't just weaponized, but mechanized and formalized a system of pumping misstatements, misdirections, obfuscations, and bad faith bullshit into the media ether that envelops our political discourse, and how Democrats need to stop thinking about political communications as public relations or press management and start thinking about it as information warfare, 
how the party can and must modernize its tactics, strategy, and infrastructure to do battle in a world where the mainstream press corps no longer reaches or has the trust of enough voters to move the needle and start building a new progressive media universe to rival the one on the right. But Pfeiffer isn't some airy-fairy visionary. He lives in the world as it is, not how it should or might be. And on this podcast, he has plenty of cold-eyed, hard-headed advice for Joe Biden's White House and Democrats more broadly, who think that touting the president's record of accomplishments will be enough to help them hold the House and Senate in November. I want to build a whole new world. I want Democrats to build a whole new world. I want to build our own fact-based, pro-choice media ecosystem, but we still live in the old one. And here, the media does not cover accomplishments in the rearview mirror. They do not. What they thrive on is conflict. So we should give them conflict. If you're going to spend one sentence promoting what you just did, you better spend three sentences attacking Republicans for not doing what you just did. And so create conflict. And there, I have read reports that the president is planning a, a big speech, I guess, around Labor Day, where he's going to come out and he's going to offer a significant contrast, I think, on these points. And I think that's exactly right. And then you just got to keep hammering that in a very sim- simple, easily shareable way. There's a lot more where that came from on this week's episode, along with some lively discussion of last week's headlines from Liz Cheney's drubbing in the GOP primary in Wyoming and whether her screamingly obvious intentions to run for president are plausible or a pipe dream to Dr. Oz's ill-conceived and even more ill-fated effort to appear remotely normal by visiting a supermarket with cameras rolling, the video from which turned into a viral sensation and embarrassment with, it turns out, some behind-the-scenes help provided by Dan and his Pod Save America pals, a truly delightful backstory unknown to America until now. But in the end, the reason you want to listen to Dan Pfeiffer isn't for his punditry or his tales of progressive mischief-making. It's because having been at Barack Obama's side when, thanks to Donald Trump, birtherism first reared its ugly head, and then having watched in horror as Facebook emerged as Trump on steroids, as he puts it, Pfeiffer understands as well as anyone in the business the dynamics that transformed the conservative echo chamber from something merely pernicious into something truly poisonous. He also understands the urgency and the stratospheric stakes involved in dismantling the systems that disinformation and propaganda spawned and sustained on the right, that unless Americans of every stripe don't band together in support of the cause tearing down those systems, our democracy is well and truly fucked as the lies and conspiracy theories grow more daunting and destructive than even hell and high water. Two years ago, I won this primary with 73% of the vote. I could easily have done the same again. The path was clear. But it would have required that I go along with President Trump's lie about the 2020 election. It would have required that I enable his ongoing efforts to unravel our democratic system and attack the foundations of our republic. That was a path I could not and would not take. There's Liz Cheney. Um, uh, we're, we're recording this the morning after she lost her primary in Wyoming. We have, uh, we have Dan Pfeiffer back. And I promised last time, Dan and Alyssa Mastermonica were on. And it just happened. We were going to talk about Dan's book, which is a very good book, the most recent one, Battling the Big Lie, How Fox, Facebook, and the MAGA Media Are Destroying America. And then we didn't get to talk about it very much because if we did the interview on the day that Roe v. Wade got overturned. <laughs> I will say this, Dan. First of all, glad to have you back. We will we're going to talk about me. misinformation, disinformation, mostly today. Um, I'll say one thing about you. In addition to being one of the most, um, I, I would say like a like, in the time when Barack Obama was in the White House, um, there were many Obama officials and aides who I 
felt like I had good productive <laughs> conversations with and relationships with. I had some of the most interesting conversations with you. Like we would sit around sometimes mm-hmm. in the White House. I come and visit mm-hmm. you. We just talk about like media and like what it was like to try to operate in the what seemed like a brave new world then. We were, and now seems like antediluvian. We were practicing for our futures, our unknown futures as podcast hosts at the time. And we just even realized it. <laughs> <laughs> it was good because you were like, I maybe at that point, maybe the youngest communications director. Stephanopoulos beat me by like three months and I'm still frustrated by it. But yeah, I have since been beaten by multiple people in the Trump yeah, administration yeah. who sort of had fake jobs. I mean, but you were also you were well plugged into like stuff that was to new media, which was not something that you normally had in White House communications directors. Anyway, so Liz Cheney, here's my question for you. There's a number of things to ask about her. Um, but I guess the starting point is, is there a way that in which Liz Cheney wins by losing? Having lost, let's put it that way. You know, is this that, where this is, you know, obviously she's lost her job. Well, I'll get to my point, my point of view about this, but let me just ask, I'll ask you point blank. Is there a way that she's that she has won, gained more than she's lost by losing the way she lost? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on what she wants to do. If she wants to pass legislation, then she lost by losing. If she wants to have a bigger platform to make the case against Donald Trump, the big lie, et cetera, then I think she is probably won by losing. She has become a textbook example of what it of being unwilling to make the compromises necessary to survive in today's Republican Party. I think she will be like a a more powerful speaker, a more in-demand speaker, a potentially more powerful voice. If that's what she wants to do, then I think she did win by losing because being just a member of the House, even if it's the majority, is a is, you know, it's a, a limited platform in and of itself, right? Like she's she was never gonna get the attention she's getting on the January 6th committee if she were to ascend to the third most senior member of the transportation committee or the foreign affairs committee or whatever else. Right. I mean, even if you take away the fact that she was, you know, stigmatized and hated by a lot of, of the, by most of the Republican caucus, even take that away. I don't think people generally in the world understand just what a kind of shitty job being a member, a house member is number one. And number two, just how mediocre most of the people are in there, in the, in those jobs. It's not like a job, you know, like most people are like, wow, he's a member of Congress. And then you meet most U S representatives. You'd be like, that's not an impressive person. They're not particularly smart. They're not like, it's not a, it's not a bastion of impressive humans generally. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also not a place that maximizes the potential of the ones who are impressive. Right. Right. You have to slog away for decades in some cases to be in a position of influence both within the body and within the body politic. And so, yeah, it's not I don't think it's particularly um, it's not a job I would want. Let me put it that way. Right. If you think about it this way, she's a three term congresswoman. She feels like feels like because she's a Cheney, she feels like she's been around forever. She got elected in 2016. She's just finishing her third term and that will be her last term. Before that, she's never been elected to anything else. She ran a primary against Mike Enzi in 2014 and lost. In less than six years in the House of Representatives, she's become a national figure. Whatever you think about her, she's be, she's gained a platform. How many House members do you, do you can you name in our lifetime that have had a national platform, a voice that basically everybody who they were, and they knew exactly what they stood for? There are more people who have that now than have ever had it before because the ability to gain attention is less tied to House seniority or legislative success and the ability to get media something less tired tied to actually doing things, but right. to have one without, particularly on the Republican side, without lighting 
your reputation and uh, views of your sanity on fire is they'd be incredibly unique. Well, and and then you've got this the point about how she lost, right? Uh, I was on when I was on with Lawrence O'Donnell last night. Lawrence said to me, "How many people can you think of who have lost a political campaign on a point of principle?" Do you, first of all, Dan, do you agree that she lost on a point of principle? You like genuinely think that she believes the things that she said? You know that the cause she's fighting for is bigger than than any one elected uh, uh, seat in in the house, in the Congress or anywhere else. And do you think she's chief lost for, on principle? And again, doesn't does that give her kind of a unique power in the sense that if authenticity, you know, is the, the now the coin of the realm, and very few politicians have it, and the one you can't buy it, you can't borrow it, you can't learn it, you can't steal it, you either have it or you don't. Seems like that again is the building block of kind of, of the, one of the key building blocks of of doing something more uh, on the back of this. Yeah, look, I have a long time generational distrust of the Cheney family. So I find this weird. Well, to sure, say. sure, sure. But, Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Right. Who doesn't? You know, and and much of how Liz Cheney rose to power, and I think some pretty uh, offensive, bigoted statements about Muslims around the world, sort of a very um, disturbing uh, apple does not fall far from the tree foreign policy approach. But I can't really – I have been unable to find a way to believe that she does, has, does anything other than believe what she's saying here. Maybe if this is the card she was dealt and she played it, but she could have done what everyone else did and just say the sure. right things and go along and she didn't. And she paid a price for it. And it, it may, you know she was definitely smart enough to realize that there was no successful half measure here once she was in. You were either going to right. lose on principle or – Lose not on principle, but you were going to lose, so you might as well go out the way she did. And I think I do think that the question is, what does she want to do with it? Was I'm sure you're going to is your soon to be follow up, yeah. Um, and how she wants to use that platform once yep. this Congress comes to an end and her seat on the January sixth committee comes to an end. Yeah, I mean that is the question. Uh, but but I, again, I say one thing about this. Another thing that just goes to Congress in general. You know, for for the last four years, five years, whatever, when people would say, why do all these Republicans follow Donald Trump the way they do? And many talking heads, myself included, because I believe it's true, would say, well, they're afraid of him. You know, they're not really afraid of him. They're afraid of his voters. Well, what will happen if you cross Donald Trump, you'll get primaried and you'll lose. Right. To which my answer is a normal, I think, fairly normal human being is like, who fucking cares? Like, you know, being a House member, maybe that is the best many of these mediocrities will ever achieve. And if they lost that job they would never be able to have anything as good in their life again. But most of them will go and be a lobbyist. They'll go and go back to their hometown now and run a bank. It's not like, you know, it's not like they're, they're going to get a hole in the head or or their life's going to like losing a primary is hardly something to be afraid of. Right. Like I don't get that's the that's where I get where I run up. I, they are afraid of it. But I don't know, to like sell your soul and and totally abrogate all your prior views and beliefs and say all the kind of crazy shit people have done following Donald Trump. Because the consequence of doing the opposite would be you lost your seat in the 37th district in, you know, in California. I don't know. Like, it just seems kind of ridiculous. And she seems to have grasped. She seems to have gotten that, I guess, is my point. Yeah. I mean, she obviously has a because of her family name and her time in politics before. She has obviously a like a place in the political world that doesn't depend on representing the 37th district of whatever state. But of course it's nothing to be afraid of. Like, would you really sacrifice your dignity, your soul? Would you really want to spend your lifetime explaining to your children and grandchildren why you went along with this insanity simply so you could keep this pretty mediocre job? No, of course not. But the same, but the same qualities that make 
a lot of people willing to to be to win in the Republican Party right now, even before this question of the big lie came, dating back at least to 2010. You've had to debase yourself in so many ways through the to get to the process, right? To win a primary, to get attention on Fox News, to raise money from whatever the base is, that this is just like one more debasement. Like the people who make it through that sort of obstacle course of shame are the people most likely to go along Mm. with this. It's like a toxic mix of insecurity and ambition that like the need to be there will allow you to make these decisions. Like normal people don't make those decisions, but normal people don't get elected to Congress and particularly don't get elected as Republicans to Congress. (laughs) Okay. That's all, that's all hundred percent true. So this guy, I want to, I'm going to play another piece of sound. It's relatively long, but I'm going to play it for a reason because it does raise the question of what you want to do next. But I want to ask you to evaluate it from the standpoint of, what you are, which is a student of communications and someone who's been a communication strategist pretty much your entire professional life. You know, she did this thing where she compared herself essentially to two people uh, in this speech. The first of whom was Abraham Lincoln, you know, take some stones to compare yourself to Abraham Lincoln in a political speech. And then she did a long riff on the other guy who she wanted to compare herself to, another U.S. president, also the general who won the Civil War, Ulysses S. Grant, respectively, our 14th and 16th presidents, uh, Lincoln and, and Grant. Let, let me just hear what she says about this. And I want to ask you whether you think, is this powerful? And is this, a, is this the way you go about running for president? Because that's clearly what she's suggesting she's going to do here. She's like, I heard these two guys who ended the Civil War saved the Union. Here she is talking about Ulysses S. Grant. In May of 1864, after years of war and a string of reluctant Union generals, Ulysses S. Grant met General Lee's forces at the Battle of the Wilderness. In two days of heavy fighting, the Union suffered over 17,000 casualties. At the end of that battle, General Grant faced a choice. Most assumed he would do what previous Union generals had, had done and retreat. He rode to the intersection of Brock Road and Orange Plank Road. And there, as the men of his army watched and waited, Instead of turning north back towards Washington and safety, Grant turned his horse south toward Richmond and the heart of Lee's army. Refusing to retreat, he pressed on to victory. Lincoln and Grant and all who fought in our nation's tragic civil war, including my own great-great-grandfathers, saved our union. Their courage saved freedom. And if we listen closely, they are speaking to us down the generations. So A, what do you think of that as a piece of speech writing? B, is it not obvious that this woman's running for president, and if not in 2024, then in the future? And C, is that is she doing it well at this point? Is that like a is that an effective way to have crafted the message for trying to shape a national future for herself as a potential presidential candidate? So as a in terms of speech writing, in telling a story, in words written, and evoking images, she gets an A. In terms of communicating with the public, I think she gets a C minus. Like it's just, it is a, there's too much subtlety, too much nuance, too much history. You got to be quicker, faster, and more explicit in this media environment about what you mean. And just say the thing, right? You don't have to use a historical analogy. And a lot of political speeches always, and much of the chagrin of my speechwriter friends, 
play better in hindsight than they do in the moment, right? right? Where it's like when you read the whole speech, and this will be true of Obama's speeches that didn't get a ton of attention in the moment. You read the whole thing, you're like, oh right. man, this was prescient. This is a hell of a story. It you know presaged what he was going to do or what was going to happen in the world. And then, but like in the moment, does it drive press coverage? Does it give the message you want? Not necessarily. Um, do I think she's running for president? Yes. I have a lot of questions about what that looks like. Is she running in a Republican primary? Is sure. it a multi-candidate field? Is Trump running? I can't imagine there's room for her in a Republican prime field that doesn't have Trump. You've just lost your foil. If Is she running as a third-party candidate, which I think has some pretty serious consequences that could potentially end up helping the person she wants to hurt? As we sit here right now, and the world's going to change 100 times between that, I mean, Donald Trump could be under multiple indictments by the time these decisions have to happen. This is a fanciful idea at the right. moment. From your lips to God's ears about the indictments. Although I wouldn't yeah. say, I mean, I wouldn't say. It won't stop them necessarily, but it could change the political environment. Right, right. I mean, th this is an, a kind of in passing comment. because the question I've been asking everybody for the last like four or five days. Like you can, can you imagine Donald Trump becoming the Republican nominee while under indictment? Yes, of course. A hundred percent. I okay. think it may even make it more likely. Right. Okay. Good. I'm glad. I'm, so far, so far, all the smart people are saying yes. Although yes. some people go, "Wait, what? Oh shit! I can't believe it." But yeah, I think that's probably right. Yeah. So I, I mean, look, I the, we'll leave Liz Cheney behind, but it'll be. I think it'll be pretty fascinating. I don't want to sound like I'm blowing too much smoke up her ass. Um, you know, we could also raise the problems with her voting record on a million things, and her yeah. voting with Trump on a million things, and voting rights, and all these things that would any liberal who who lionizes her now, if you looked deeper at her record, not just yeah. the foreign policy record, but a lot of the domestic record, you'd be like, holy shit. At the same time, you know, you know, she's right now she's fighting an important fight and she's fighting it the right way. So um, I got you got to give her a little bit of credit for that. Speaking of giving someone a little bit of credit, Joe Biden, right? Yeah. The, the Inflation Reduction Act got signed into law. And after a string of wins where he has been racking up wins left, right and center and, and the timing has been terrible because we've all been. I would say justifiably obsessed with the notion that the former president of the United States may have stolen, appears to have stolen classified material, taken it to Mar-a-Lago, and is now potentially facing uh, the shortest route to an orange jumpsuit, as uh, as, uh, <laughs> as George Conway put it the other day. You know, we're the news media is rightly focused on that, but Joe Biden's not been getting a lot of love for the successes he's had. Got a little bit yesterday, at least I gave him some on TV when he signed the Inflation Reduction Act. Let us hear Joe Biden speak of that at the signing ceremony at the White House. Too often, we confuse noise with substance. Too often, we confuse, we confuse setbacks with defeat. Too often, we hand the biggest microphones to the critics and the cynics who delight in declaring failure while those committed to making real progress do the hard work of governing. Making progress in this country is a, as big and complicated as ours clearly is not easy. It's never been easy. But with unwavering conviction, commitment, and patience, progress does come. Your dad was right. When he said the thing about critics and cynics who delight in declaring failure, there was a little nattering nabobs of negativism kind of creeping in there. Just a little more alliteration. He could have got it all the way to Agnew. Um, <laughs> uh, something, to aspire, something to aspire to. Um, do me, give me your your diagnosis. Let's start with this. I actually thought that was pretty good. I, the reason I chose that sound was that is like as I thought as well crafted a little piece of of Joe Biden, you know, not oratory exactly, mm. but of explanatory and emphatic. And he sounded good giving it yesterday. He clearly is is, is riding high right now. It, it, give me your your sense of like how 
there's so much discussion of democratic message failures and does this White House do it right or not? Do they suck at messaging? Are they good, good at messaging, but no one pays attention? What's your, the first question is, how good are they at messaging from your expert point of view and someone who obviously wants Democrats to win and wants Biden to, su to succeed? I think they are excellent at saying the right things. Biden's agenda and his message is incredibly popular, right? It is a very unique situation that he has done all of these things and there is no policy backlash against Biden, right? It is, this is not, you know, Obama at this point was sitting with, uh, an Affordable Care Act and a stimulus bill that had negative approval ratings heading in the election. Joe Biden's, the approval ratings of his agenda vastly exceed his own approval ratings. And so they have picked right. popular things and they say the popular things. The thing that is really hard, and this is not really a critique of them, it's really a larger statement on the media environment and the challenges that Democrats face is getting people to hear what he says is very, very hard. And you hear it from people all the time that they don't hear Joe Biden enough, they don't know what he's saying. And then you go talk to people in the White House, they're like, we said all these things, we did these events, we were out there. You know, it's like there's there was that poll that came out about a few months ago about the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which is if you tell people what is in it, they love it. And almost no one right. knows what's in it. And the White House will say, we did a thousand events, a thousand events. Yeah. Pete Buttigieg has been everywhere, right? Jennifer Granholm yeah. has been everywhere. Biden's been places, Kamala Harris has been, and no one gets it. And that is that is one of the huge challenge of communicating, particularly from the White House in this media environment. Like there is this almost irony to the fact that Biden was elected in part because he was a seen as a competent return to normalcy. Like and there was almost this yeah. view yeah. of, man, we're not going to have to talk about the freaking president every single day. The, the widespread the, view, I'd say many people said that. Right. And he is, you know, and he is he's our first non-celebrity president in the modern media environment. Right. And Obama, I think, would probably be mad at me for saying he was a celebrity, but he was a famous was. person and the he media was, like, was obsessed was, was obsessed with total him. Total celebrity. Come on. Um, yeah. And people were obsessed with him. Yes. Right. And then Trump was obviously a celebrity in the most common definition yeah. of it. And Biden is just like a normal president trying to exist in a media environment that is celebrity personality driven. And that is just, he is at an inherent disadvantage because he doesn't have, and there's a little bit of a sort of self-perpetuating cycle, which is because he's not a celebrity, the media doesn't give him less coverage. So when he says things, he gets less coverage. And it's just, it's, they're in an incredibly difficult way. If they are trying to communicate purely organically through the earned media and earned sort of social. Right. So, I mean, I guess when I hear the, I mean, I know you're not totally taking this position, but you, you'll be familiar with this phenomenon, which is, you know, like in a presidential campaign, when somebody says, you know, uh, Secretary Clinton talks about, you know, talks about our policies all the time. Look at our website. You know, we have all this policy on our website. No one pays attention. You're kind of like, well, you know, uh, it's, yes, you, they've done a lot of events and, and you can, I got no problem with people who judge or Jennifer Granholm, but you, yeah. the reality is that in any media environment, you know, cabinet secretaries, surrogates are not going to drive the yeah. message. You need to have the president's got to be the person who drives the message. And Joe Biden is not as effective a communicator as Pete Buttigieg. Unfortunately, if he was, it'd be mm. maybe a different story. There are obviously a lot of Democrats who yell at us in the press all the time and say, it's not his fault. You guys just don't, you know, want to listen. You get, he doesn't get the attention he deserves. You know, they do these events. It's a fair, it's a fair response on their part to say, we do all these events. They don't get covered because the press is shallow. The press is obsessed with Trump. The press is obsessed with January 6th, whatever. To what degree do you think that's a fair, to blame the environment is, is actually fair versus being a dodge because the environment's the environment. I mean, my, my general view about these things in presidential campaigns or White Houses is, God, you, you got to play on the field you're given. Like you got to either master that field or not. 
You can't complain about it. It's it is what it is. Like I'm not saying that the Biden White House or the Obama White House when I worked there did everything perfectly. It's yeah. but there is a structural problem where even if the Biden White House did everything correctly, if your primary method of communicating with the public is through the traditional press, you are going to fail. That is a failed strategy. It cannot work. The traditional press does not have the reach. It certainly doesn't have the reach to the voters you have you want most. It does not have the trust of the voters you need most, less engaged voters. And it certainly does not have your interests at heart, right? It is basically like you were taking the and nor should it, right? I'm not saying it yeah, should yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah, no, I know, I know. I but know. like the the press has a set of you know frameworks by which they make decisions of what they cover, right? Some of it is journalistic, you know, journalistic ethos. Is it new, right? New is so important to us. Even if 99% of people do have, did not hear the thing when it happened the first time, it must be new. Is it exclusive? Is it good business? Does it drive traffic? Does it drive ratings? All of those things are like fair things for the press to cover. Is it accountability journalism, right? We'd much rather focus on the bumps than the road. All of that is like, that is the world in which the press lives. And if you choose to take your product, right, if you think about it in a business analogy or your message, and you give it to a bunch of people who often, who not only don't share your interests, they may view it as their job to make your life harder, to hold you accountable yes. and say, go deliver yes. our message, go deliver our product, you're going to fail. And so that's why you have to think like the that world only worked when there were no other options. And when the media had such a singular hold on the public's attention that it could be an effective tool. We're so far beyond that now. Let's make this practical, right? They did the event, yes, they did the event celebrating the passage, signing the into, into law, the Inflation Reduction Act. And they said, we're coming back, you know, in a month, we're going to do another big event and we're going to really go out hard with this message in the fall. And there's, you know, a, a memo that ended up uh, in Politico, I think, uh, drafted by the White House comm shop uh, directed to Ron Klain mm. uh, that kind of like basically laid out the strategy saying, this is what we're going to do. We're going to message the hell out of this thing. And, and I know you've written, uh, in addition to being the author of this uh, spectacular book, um, which is the title of which I will read once more, <laughs> Battling the Big Lie, How Fox, Facebook, and the MAGA Media Are Destroying America. Dan also does a newsletter that's fascinating called The Message Box. It's one of those things that lives on some platform called like Stack Stub or something. I'm something like that. Just Google it. it. You'll find I'm it. Too, yes. I'm too old. I'm too old to know what that mm -hmm. is. But apparently you get paid on that platform, which I think is important. <laughs> but you, you've written a fair amount about that the Inflation Reduction Act you know, that, that the title of it's way better than mm. Build Back Better, at least in this context, in the, in the moment that we live in now, yep. and that this presents a real opportunity for Democrats in the fewer than 100 days that are left between now and the midterms. Like what, given everything you just said about the environment, about the challenges of the environment, about about what they have to sell, like if you were White House Communications Director right now, uh, you'd be saying what about how to go from here to the midterms and maximize the impact of the IRA and everything else that Biden has done in the first year plus uh, to help Democrats, you know, maybe pull off a miracle and, and keep control of Congress. I read the memo that you referenced, which is a memo from White House Communications Director Kate Bedingfield and White House Senior Advisor Anita Dunn, both of whom I've worked with many times over the years, both in the Obama White House and I worked with Anita on many, many, many campaigns over the years. And everything in that memo, I would do. Right. There was absolutely like right. you have to do all those things. They're the right things to do. You have to manage your stakeholders. You like ultimately what Biden's trying to do is help House and Senate primarily. Right. Or at least one of the things is help House and Senate Democrats win their elections. So like that's sort of the way you would think about it differently in the context of 
how specifically do we approve, improve Biden's approval rating? How specifically do we, does he, were he to get reelected if he were the one on the ballot in 80 some days? And there are a lot of things that I imagine are happening that cannot be written in that memo because that's a memo written. Designed, designed to be leaked, yeah. Well, they, but also written within the confines of the uh, much stricter lawyers within the White House than probably existed in the Trump White House, right, about Hatch Act right. violations, coordination with outside groups. But sure, there, I would, the way to think about this, in my view, and I am a very – this is part of why I wrote the book you just referenced – is Democrats have to be distribution-focused in how we think about our communications. Not what we say, but how we people to say it. So like, let's start with that part. You come up with the perfect message, no one hears it. It's a, you know, a tree falling in the woods problem, obviously. And so who are the audiences that we need to reach? Because anything in the New York Times, MSNBC, CNN, The Washington Post, on Twitter, is seen by the same narrow group of people who overwhelmingly, by all measures of sort of media diets, are pretty decided about what they're going to do. They were going to vote for Democrats, right. whether Biden passed the right. infl- Inflation Reduction Act or not. Like that is it. You're just, you're preaching to the choir. I remember again. And yep. so who are the people we need to reach? And then you work backwards from that. How do they consume their media? What's the way to do it? And that, and I think that would include largely, you know, it's obviously Biden and, the, and Vice President Harris are the biggest, you know, they're obviously the ones with, who get the most attention, the biggest megaphones have to be the most important messengers. How are you communicating with those people? What are the platforms at which they consume? Uh, you know, what are the media outlets they consume? Who are the people in their lives? And so think backwards from the audience. You're going to need to make this work for people to really know it three things. One, there is going to need to be a significant paid advertising component which is the part that cannot be in the memo. And I did, some of that will be like linear TV ads that will you know, yeah. run on local news or 60 Minutes or on the HG network or ESPN or wherever your target audience is. But more importantly, and I think what more campaigns have been doing and should be doing is boosted news, right? So there's all this great coverage off of that event yesterday. 99% yep. of people you want to see it are never going to see it. So how do you pay to put that news in front of them? So that's part one. Part two is I think you really want to we have to the democrats have to think about the audience not the person who hears reads the story watches the clip sees the social post not as the end consumer right where that's where it ends we have to view each and every one of them as ample as force multipliers people who will then take that message out so what you would want to do is you'd want to over index on progressive media this is not just a pitch for them all to come on pod save america 12 times but on places <laughs> where democratic activists get their news because those are the people like tucker carlson's viewers who hear the message yep. and then take it out into the world either on social to the on their family group chats or just like at the coffee shop right that you want those people carrying your message out there and then i think the other part and this is like a longer term thing is but like how do you very specifically Get the content you want, you know, in the hands of your activists, the people we normally go to to knock doors, send texts, and give money, and have them share that content. How are they out there doing that? How are we having sort of a distributed messaging operation? And you would sort yeah. of leverage that. And then I would, say, I would add one more thing: is we still exist in the like. I want to build a whole new world. I want Democrats to build a whole new world. I want to build our own fact-based, pro-choice pro- media ecosystem. But we still live in the old one. And here, the media does not cover accomplishments in the rearview mirror. They do not. What they thrive on is conflict. So we should give them conflict. Mm -hmm. If you're going to spend one sentence promoting what you just did, you better spend three sentences attacking Republicans for not doing what you just did. 
And so create right. conflict. And there, I have read reports. I, I don't have anyone in the White House who's told me these are necessarily true, but that the president is planning a, a big speech, I guess, around Labor Day where he's going to come out and he's going to offer a significant contrast, I think, on these points. And I think that's exactly right. And then you just got to you got to keep hammering that in a very sim- simple, easily shareable way. There has been a, an appreciable shift over the last few months that Democrats in their partisan way say, well, momentum's growing on our side. But if you think about, you know, the reaction to Roe, what we saw in Kansas, the reaction to Uvalde, the, 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 the front and centerness of Donald Trump and, and the way in which that is a boon to Democrats. The other day, you know, I would have said, you know, people, Democrat, Trump jumping into the presidential race was like Democrats were like, please jump into the presidential race because we would love to prosecute the message of Republican extremism, a national contrast message. Republicans are extreme, they're cultists, uh, and here's some examples of how it's, it's fucking up the world. And now, almost almost as good or maybe better than Trump running for president is Trump being, you know, uh, possibly messing around with like nuclear secrets and 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 having the whole Republican Party, which we'll get to later, uh, rise up in unison and start attacking the FBI uh, as Gestapo, Stasi, you know, all the crazy shit they've been saying. As you sit here right now, all of those things that create opportunities for Democrats that they that that they want. What do you think the chance is there? Are you now of the view that you think there is some chance that Democrats play their cards exactly right, and that this and this perfect storm turns out to be a perfect storm that they could actually end up holding onto the House, or is that still a bridge too far? Is that a bridge too far? I mean, it is the chances of success at the House and Senate level have gone up dramatically in the last three months. You yep. sort of cited all the reasons, yeah. Roe, you know, and ultimately what Roe, what brings together Roe and Trump and the Republican response to the raid on Trump is what Democrats want this election to be is not a referendum on the cost of eggs and milk, but a referendum on Republican extremism. Yep. And that is now in the cards. The House is an uphill climb. You know, where the generic ballot sits today, we are not going to keep the House, but that could change. We don't know what's going to happen with Trump. So we have a shot. Our chances in the Senate are magnified both by where those races are taking place, all, yep. all in states that Joe Biden won, albeit narrowly, and the candidates Republicans have running. Herschel Walker, Dr. Oz, Blake Masters. There's a whole bunch of them who are pretty flawed. Um, and we're going to have to – who you know, and we've seen this before. We saw this in 2010. We saw this in 2012 where – Candidates matter in statewide races, and they yes. can lose races even when the political environment is, runs a, you know, is in their favor. So, yeah, we, we absolutely have a shot. We have more work to do to get there, for yeah. sure. But it is it, – we if you, three months ago, four months ago, whatever it was, no chance for the House. Now there is a chance. It is a narrow, very narrow path, and we've got work to do, but it exists. All right. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more of Dan Pfeiffer on Helen High Water after these messages. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. Before we went to break, Dan, you invoked the name of Dr. Oz. Uh, and I do want to talk about the not-so-good doctor now, uh, just because you mentioned his name. And he you know, is in the middle of a bit of a kerfuffle, a self-inflicted kerfuffle at the moment. And you know, I was very pleased to wake up and see uh, when I looked in my inbox, there's the latest <laughs> issue. Is it an issue of the message box? What is it, an issue, a dispatch? It's, it's a, a post, I know, think. It's a post. Post, whatever. whatever they call it. From the message box, Dan Puffeifer, 
It says Dr. Oz crudite and the gaffes that matter. Let's let's just let's let's go down that that rabbit hole just very quickly. Dr. Oz suddenly this is an old video that suddenly popped up. It like on Twitter it says it was from April I think, but this week it suddenly everybody's talking about it. Um, and it's a thing that the, that's on Dr. Oz's Twitter feed. So they put this out, uh, and it's him uh, shopping for crudite at maybe Wegner's. I don't know, um, but he's in the. It's, re- it's in actually the- it's Rev- it's Revner's, which is a I believe, which is a Pennsylvania grocery store. Wegner's is a amalgamation of Wegmans and Revner's. So he- <laughs> one of the many problems with this video. Let's just yes. play that very quickly here. Here's Dr. Oz go shopping. I thought I did some grocery shopping. I'm at Wegner's and I, my wife wants some vegetables for crudite, right? So here's a broccoli. That's two bucks. Not a ton of broccoli there. There's some asparagus. That's four dollars. Yep. Carrots. That's four more dollars. That's ten dollars of vegetables there. And then we need some guacamole. That's four dollars more. And she loves salsa. Yeah, there's salsa there. Six dollars. Must be a shortage of salsa. Guys, that's $20 for crudite, and this doesn't include the tequila. I mean, that's outrageous. And we got Joe Biden to thank for this. Now, um, I, I, will, I will pass over the obvious questions that, as you, as you address them in your, in your post, as they call them on, the, on that stack sub platform, uh, who puts salsa and guacamole in the, on their crudite? Uh, how could he get the name of the grocery store wrong? It is the case that it's like, it is the first question you ask when you watch it, you're like, how could they ever have thought that this was a good idea to post this? Like that, that was a, that, that made sense. Talk about, about though, about the deeper issues, like about like, which are the gaps that matter? Cause there's a lot of focus on gaps and a lot of them are like completely meaningless and trivial. And the press obsesses over them, but sometimes someone does something really stupid that opens a window, a different kind of window and can actually cause them damage. And I'm curious if you think like that, Dr. Oz, this is one of those. Can I just tell a funny backstory about why we're talking about this right now? So oh, of course you can. last last weekend, we were on Pots of America was on tour in Atlanta and we had a long time that we were at the theater, but before the show started and mm. there was a running joke about crudite because everyone's very hungry and there was a quote unquote crudite platter in, uh, in the room in which we were waiting uh, for the show to start. And mm. Elijah Cohn, who is a who's the video producer at Crooked, said, have you guys ever seen the Dr. Oz crudite video? We were, like, yeah. we were like, what are you, what are you talking about? And so he showed it to, it, to John Favreau and uh, John Lovett, who were there at the time, and they thought it was the funniest thing in the world. It's from April, right? He put it out. That's in what I said. Yeah, primer. that's what I yeah. said. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so then Tommy Vitor and I got to the room they were in. They showed us the video. And I assumed it was brand new. And I was like ready to – we were going to like – and I saw it. And then we all, tw- we all tweeted about it. Other people tweeted about it. It got picked up by people and then took off. So it's actually to the credit in this exact moment in time to a video producer, a crooked, who has just known about this for five months and never told anyone um, that it is out there. So that's just a sort of amusing way of how these things can find life. I think you should tell that video producer the next time he sees something that insane, he should tell you about it more quickly. Yes, like, that's yeah. the big problem there. <laughs> that's like, exactly. why'd you wait five months to tell us about yeah. that, dude? Come on, <laughs> that's, that's fucking crazy. And so the reason why, like, ultimately, who cares, right? And like, you and I have talked in the past about the idiocy and foolishness of sort of the political culture's obsession with misstatements and gaffes. You know, this was very dominant, perhaps in the more so more so than any other time in history in the 2012 campaign where Mitt Romney tended to make a ton of them. Yeah, yes, he did. He made a ton of them. But, you know, um, Dan, to your point, I mean, 
I mean, you'll recall, I mean, as bad as Romney was, and as many times he put his foot in his mouth, uh, the press became so conditioned to it that one of the great stories from that campaign, uh, probably lost to history now, is, is Romney, when he went on this foreign trip that he took in the summer of 2012, uh, you know, he, he was going around doing what, what presidential nominees do, trying to show that he could, you know, walk around on the foreign stage and, and look presidential. But he made a dumb comment uh, in, in a visit to London about Britain's preparedness for the Olympics. And then he got to Israel and he said something that pissed off the Palestinians. And the reporters who were covering the trip were, you know, they were they used to covering Romney's gaffes and, and his mis- misstatements and mistakes and the times he put his foot in his mouth. But they were really frustrated also by the lack of access to Romney. And so in Warsaw, again, I'll always remember this, so ridiculous. In Warsaw, they start yelling at him for from a rope line uh, and, you know, shouting questions about, you know, his fuck ups. And, and that led to one of the, what I think is one of the all time great lines in the history of presidential politics where someone uh, yelled out, someone who will remain named. Well, maybe not someone that was yelled out anyway, Governor Romney, what about your gaffes? What about your gaffes? But what's amazing is the two reporters who yelled that went on to become two of the most successful and most thoughtful political reporters in the whole land. So it's like, you can learn, right? They- yeah. I mean, look, I, you know, I said I didn't want to name them, but the truth is they're both such great reporters, Phil Rucker from, uh, the, from the Washington post. And, and now Ashley Parker, uh, also at the Washington post, who was at the time at the New York times. And I mean, well, it, it, since we're talking about, it, <laughs> and it is like, so ridiculous, I bet we can find the sound of that. Um, which, uh, yeah, we got, we have the sound. Okay. Let's, let's, there's a little, a little, uh, hot tub time machine moment here. Let's go back to the summer of 2012, the Romney Obama campaign and this moment in Warsaw that we've been talking about. Governor Romney. Governor Romney, do you have a statement for the Palestinians? What about your gaffes? Governor Romney, do you feel that your gaffes have overshadowed your foreign trip? I'm not trying to be mean to to Phil and Ashley there by playing that. Um, uh, you know, like I said, they've gone on to great things. They're both fantastic reporters and good friends of this podcast. Uh, but man, uh, at the time, it just you know really bespoke uh, spoke to how how frustrated they were by being locked out of any access to Romney on that trip. But it is kind of an amazing moment. I mean, it was such the gas were such a big deal in that campaign <laughs> that Obama once said the phrase, you didn't build that when referring and he was trying to make a point. He could have made it better about yeah. how yeah. everyone contributes to people's success. Right. You benefit right. from infrastructure, taxes, education, et cetera. But the Republicans became so obsessed with that that they had an entire day of their convention based around yes, that. I remember. Oh, yes. my God. So it's like it was everywhere. In a weird way, Donald Trump kind of made that go away just because gaffes were, he just, he said things all the time and, sure. the, and the, his yeah. 2016 came in one. And so people became less focused on it. Almost the coverage almost became, it went from how's this gaffe going to end your campaign to how's this gaffe going to help Donald Trump get more votes. But, <laughs> but we have returned potentially in the Biden era to gaffes in part because Republicans want to take every misstatement, every garbled word that Joe Biden makes and use it to try to prove the idea that he is unfit, has dementia, sort of right wing you know, sort of fever dream stuff that never works, right? The gaps that don't matter are the ones that don't tell people anything that they want to believe or care about the candidate. And there's, I wrote about this in the newsletter and only you and I are sort of old enough to know this, but there's a Washington post columnist named Michael Kinsley, mm-hmm. who once wrote about the true gaffes are the ones that reveal. So when you accidentally say the truth, you actually reveal right. a truth about yourself and they call it the Kinsley gaffe. Right. The most famous one in recent history, in, before this instance right here is probably Mitt Romney getting caught on tape talking about the 47% of Americans that don't pay taxes. 
that revealed a truth about Mitt Romney and his disdain for people less rich than him that was part of his policy agenda, fit with what people thought about him, and fit with the exact message that our campaign was trying to tell people about Mitt Romney. So it was powerful. I will say for for the record, and I do not want to go on a digression about this, but there (laughs) will be – if a Republican were on this thing, would you say – Oh, that was certainly very powerful, Dan. But uh, bitter people clinging to their guns and religion was was in the view of Republicans equally revealing about Barack Obama. I, but I did it I, matter? I no, I I know. But the I, question is, but it, but I think the question is, why doesn't it matter? Because yes, this is actually right. goes to the point, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is people did not believe, even like put aside like the most fierce partisans, right? Yeah. Even people who did not love Obama, did not agree with his agenda, did not think he was an elitist asshole. Right. That's, That's not what they thought yep. about because yep. of. How he conducted himself and his personal background was actually of you know coming from right of course of course you know, a of single course. mom all yeah, of yeah. that that helped so yeah. but we don't have to we don't have to relitigate something the, that the is now sixteen that, years ago I, I will but I'll say one th- other thing along the way mm. the other thing that's really desperately true is that and I know you're going to agree with me about this is that often these gap the gaps that get you in the most trouble are when the candidate decides to do the thing that the communications director hates the most which is to play <laughs> pundit when the candidate yes. decides he's going to be because that's yes. bitter people clinging to their guns religion punditry basketball yeah. deplorables punditry the 47 percent punditry those are all things where it's like you know pete Buttigieg in the 2020 race saying to me you know it's a two-person race now it's like you want to say to your candidate what the fuck are you doing talk about the real lives of real people yeah. stop talking about the race yeah. or analyzing the electorate or whatever else you're doing anyway sorry yeah never be pundit and never be sociologist don't right. try to explain why people believe what they believe just talk to them <laughs> yeah, um, the Oz one is very – so to go back to why anyone yeah, yeah, should yeah. care about this absurd video is the entire message of the Fetterman community, which they have delivered brilliantly and relentlessly, is that Dr. Oz is an is a rich, out-of-touch, out-of-state, pretty weird guy. Yeah. And here was a video where they just basically made the most effective negative campaign ad against Oz themselves and then released it. It is like he looks – he looks like he's never been in a grocery store before. He picked crudite of all the things. Like, why is he not making breakfast? Why isn't he buying scrambled eggs and bacon? You know, two things that were quite expensive. Or milk. Yeah. Why did you know why like yeah. why does he not know the name of the grocery store? Why does he think you put salsa and guacamole? It's all so weird yes. and uncomfortable. <laughs> and it fits their exact message. Exactly. And they had like they are hammering the fact that he is weird. That is one of his disadvantages. And I actually did a like this political experts react with his YouTube show. I did it with Stuart Stevens, who is yes. Romney's uh, yeah. Chief strategist, very very smart guy, very uh, anti-Trump Republican, and we were talking about this. We were looking at ads from the Pennsylvania primary. Yep. And my view at the time, sort of in the outset of the primary, was that Dr. Oz would be the more formidable opponent than Dave McCormick, the hedge fund guy from Connecticut, because yeah. Oz had, like Trump, had built up this reservoir of relationship with people, the brand. You can't be brand. And he's doctor. He's doctor, and some people actually believe that means something. Yeah. And he. And he's with, you know, he's on camera with Oprah and it's like, could Oprah really put up like a MAGA lunatic in our lives? No, of course. Right. Like that's, you know, he they had those advantages. And Stuart Stevens said he thought McCormick would be much harder to beat because Oz was weird. He was weird and off-putting. And Stuart was exactly right. And it comes through and you can see like one thing that Fetterman does that is very smart is a lot of his ads include this very weird video clip of Dr. Oz kissing his own Hollywood star. Yes. So he's kissing the street because he's such an ego. And, you know, in, like when campaigns nail the image that has their message, they use it relentlessly. Yeah. In 2008, our message was 
John McCain was an extension of George W. Bush. And there was this video, uh, there was that video from the Republican convention in 2004 of, there are two videos we used in every ad. One was the hug between Bush and McCain on the convention stage. And the other one was McCain and Bush riding around on a golf cart at Kenny yeah. Bunkport. Yeah. yeah. Every ad put it just like the two of yeah. them looking looking yeah. like goofy buddies out playing 18 holes. And the Fetterman people are doing it here. And now they can probably just use the crudite video if they want for similar reasons. I'm trying to remember what the Romney image was. You guys, I think it might've had something to do with the private jet that you guys used like over and over. There again was him getting, a, there was hit, there was him getting <laughs> off the jet. Uh, yeah. I, you know, in hindsight we could have used, there was that great footage of the Romney plane and the Trump plane parked next to each other. Yes. Uh, I remember. Yes. From, that's an incredible yes. shot. One of the greatest shots yeah. ever. This is a question. Democrats ask me all the time. Are you having, having watched a fair number of Fetterman video mm-hmm. videos that were since his stroke that were awkwardly yeah. edited um, where he did not sound, I mean, I'm not trying to criticize anybody for dealing with their mm. health issues or whatever, mm. but, but concerned Democrats, I mean, you, know, you have to hear about this 10 times more than I do. Yeah. Every Democratic donor I know is like, is that guy okay? Because it'd be, I mean, it'd be bad if we blew that Senate race in Pennsylvania because he's, because of an unfortunate health incident. And some of those videos they put out in the couple months after were a little hinky. Um, a, lot of, a lot of micro edits and, mm. and strange diction and stuff. Are you right now confident that Fetterman is like, in, in, if not top playing shape, is in good enough playing shape to be able to bring that race home and be good enough to be able to really debate when the moment comes that he'll be able to kick ass? Yeah. I mean, from everything I hear, he has, uh, and I thought, and I watched the rally he did last weekend, I think it was, and did yeah. great. Like he is recovering from a very serious health thing. I, yes, if you I, look you at know. this, their health in presidential races are much more an issue than health in Senate races. Look at the Senate, right. for God's sake, right? Yeah. Like, if, if he never got <laughs> an iota better than he is right now, he'd be in the top 15% of healthiest, most vo- like vibrant senators. And so yeah. I'm not, I am, that is not a thing that I am worried about. And everything I've heard from the people around that campaign is he is fine and getting better. And will you know, will there be some stutters and some diction? Maybe, uh, you know, that is very possible. That's what happens when you have a health incident like that. But I also think the fact that he's had to deal with the deal with this health incident is a fairly relatable thing that people understand. Um, and so it is, this is not, that is not my, I have a lot of concerns in the world. I worry about everything. This is not high on my worry list. Um, okay. I was, I, the only, the only group of people in Congress who are as, as frail and infirm as the United States Senate is the entirety of the Democratic leadership, but I'll, but I'll, yeah, that, I look, I, that so is, it is of, a concern. A bunch, a bunch, it a bunch is of 80 year olds. <laughs> like yeah. Nancy they were very, they were very oh healthy 80 year olds. They may be old. Yes. They're very healthy for their age. Okay. So listen, we, as usual, what we've done here is we've gone off on a long tangent that has taken us away yeah. from, uh, from, from the book battling the big lie, how Fox, Facebook and the MAGA media are destroying America. And, you know, we, I, Dan, we are going to get to it and we're going to give it up. We're going to talk about it for a while, but we first need to take one more break. And then when we come back. We will dive headlong into the book. And it's a very important topic with its author, Dan Pfeiffer, here on Hell and High Water. And we are back with Dan Pfeiffer on Hell and Hot Water. And Dan, I, I want to I start off uh, talking about uh, the book uh, with a little, another golden oldie, uh, going back even further than the Romney thing uh, into, into 2011, April of 2011, uh, some sound that, 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 that you 
you know, probably heard a million times, but even, even people who are only casual political observers have heard this sound uh, with some frequency, but it, it, it gets right into the heart of, of your book, uh, you know, and the, the subject that you take on head on, which is, you know, the conspiracy theories, misinformation and disinformation that now permeate our politics. So here's the sound that I want to play from the White House Correspondents' Dinner, April 2011, uh, Barack Obama. Uh, who had been subject to some, not just some, but one particular conspiracy theory unleashed by one particular man. And at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, uh, he had a chance to, uh, to, to strike back. So he took out his shiv and he gutted Donald Trump. Donald Trump is here tonight. Now I know that he's taken some flack lately. But no one is happier, no one is prouder to put this birth certificate matter to rest than the Donald. And that's because he can finally get back to focusing on the issues that matter. Like, did we fake the moon landing? What really happened in Roswell? And where are Biggie and Tupac? Nothing like the uh, the appreciation of the assembled great and good of Washington D.C. for a well told joke uh, by a uh, literate president at the expense of a uh, someone who everyone regarded at the time as a joke. Uh, and you know, you hear everybody laugh. That's really funny. Yeah, fake the moon landing. What happened to Biggie and Tupac? Who knew at that moment that this was like a precursor to everything that would unfold in our future? You guys at that moment were exacting revenge. Uh, on Donald Trump for his claims that Barack Obama was born in Kenya and that he needed to see his birth certificate to prove that he was a legitimate president. Uh, and eventually, you know, you guys capitulated to those demands. Uh, but that was really sort of the start uh, of this new era where the fever swamp got way more feverish while you were in the White House. And it wasn't just Fox News. At that point, a new thing started to mutate. So I just want you to talk about that. You were like, you saw the early the early indications of what was to come. And I'm curious about how, like what you took away from that as that like informs this book in, in the sense that like yep. you lived a lot of it in its, in its more incipient form. And now it's obviously metastatic and all over the place yep. and horrible. But like, what, what did you take away from that experience with Obama? Well, when I started for president Obama in 2007, when we first started dealing with the birth certificate, the idea, the conspiracy theory that Obama was born in Kenya and therefore ineligible to be president, we actually first started dealing with it with Democratic voters, Democratic caucus, potential caucus goers in Iowa who liked Obama, but were raising this with our field staff. And we were able to solve the problem among Democratic caucus goers simply by putting out the first version of his birth certificate, which was good enough for everyone other than Donald Trump, and having just showing it to people, having it posting it online, having people send the link like that worked because the way in which it's just such an ancient world, the way in which these things flared up was through email forwards, which is a obviously something that is moves faster than word of mouth in the old days, but nothing like what we see today. Like it, it could not, you could, they, you could contain them. And then when, and we thought we had basically had, you know, Barack Obama won by a large amount, won all these states, felt like yeah. we'd really put that thing to bed and didn't really worry about it. And I said, right in the book, like there was always there are always these meetings in the lawyer's office to talk about the birth certificate thing because 
Obama was being sued by multiple people, many of whom would end up being close to jo- to uh, Donald Trump's orbit, like Jerome yeah. Corsi, yep. Alyssa Farrow's dad, like <laughs> some real people who we thought were on their way out. And um, but it, no one really cared. It was a legal issue, right? It was just like you should be aware there's going to be a hearing where this case will probably be dismissed tomorrow. And then all of a sudden, 2011, which was not really our strong time, like it was a very tough time for <laughs> President Obama. Uh, we like we were uh, we, the Republicans had just taken charge. The recession was kind of reinvigorated by yeah. a financial crisis in Europe. Yeah. And all of a sudden, we got all these serious things, and we're trying to like. There was, there was know, maybe, that one month where the jobs report came back with zero jobs created. Yes, yes, which was obviously in, in revised the, up to a much larger zero a month later. Yes. Zero, which was still, wor- frankly zero worse worse than minus three thousand was zero. zero. Um, yeah. And uh, and all of a sudden, we just start getting all these questions, like, "What about the birth certificate? Like, like, and why did it come up?" And it's because. Donald Trump was promoting the next season of The Celebrity Apprentice, and he realized yep. he could get a lot of attention by raising this first on Fox News and then on NBC, where he was on all the platforms on NBC from sort of corporate synergy of it's an right. NBC show. <laughs> and reporters, like a lot of people interviewing him, didn't take it seriously, and they didn't take him seriously, which was sort right. of a misunderstanding of his influence within the Republican Party, which was actually pretty sizable at that time. Yeah. And so they were treating him as sort of a Yahoo tabloid figure who hosts a show where people where B-list celebrities or C-list celebrities get fake jobs. Like that's how you treated it. Right. As if like a cast member of the real housewives was on, right. That's basically what he was at the time. Kind of wildly, nakedly, transparently self-interested. He's doing this. Like you've just been, I guess it's it's just Trump, Trump doing this thing to try to like somehow boost his ratings, whatever we won't talk about seriously. Yeah. And then reporters in the white house, like, look there. This is really this is really also the moment where internet traffic is becoming such a much bigger part of the economic model of a set of, of journalistic institutions that were really, really struggling. Everyone was struggling in that time. The New York Times, the Washington Post was basically in on the real verge of becoming a sort of middling regional newspaper instead of sort of the powerhouse it is today. And so you want to get more traffic on your articles, you ask about Donald Trump. And we, we wanted to ignore it. We got mad about it. And really, it, had it not been for Barack Obama, we would not have ever put the birth certificate out. This was his idea. Right. He made us do it. He forced us to do it. Actually, Dan, let, let's, let's, you know, let's listen uh, uh, to some more Obama from that time frame. Um, th- this sound is when you guys did it, uh, put out the birth certificate, having finally located it. Um, this was amazingly just three days before the correspondence dinner. Uh, what the sound we played earlier. Uh, and this was in the White House briefing room, uh, the President of the United States, uh, walking out to greet this, like everybody in the press corps. And he made a joke about the fact that like he would never get this coverage for a foreign policy address. It was like everybody was there because the birth certificate thing had been, you know, all consuming for some period of time. Uh, so you guys had gotten it. You put it on the internet for everyone to see. And Obama said that. And then he went on, as was his want, uh, to make a larger point. I'm confident that the American people and America's political leaders can come together in a bipartisan way and solve these problems we always have. But we're not going to be able to do it if we are distracted. We're not going to be able to do it if we spend time vilifying each other. We're not going to be able to do it if 
we just make stuff up and pretend that facts are not facts. We're not going to be able to solve our problems if we get distracted by sideshows and carnival barkers. Uh, sideshows and carnival barkers. That's really all our politics are now. Um, and, and Dan, you know, of course, Barack Obama was right about that. But you were saying that the president drove the release of the birth certificate. And so, you know, at the time, and even more so now, like with the benefit of hindsight, do you think he was right? He was 100% right. It was the right thing to do because it at least stopped the conversation in the moment, at least stops because there, there are two elements of when these conspiracy theories take over that we have to, that Democratic or the politicians generally, if you're the subject of them, have to worry about. One is people you care about believing them and therefore not liking you anymore, not supporting you anymore, not voting for you. And the other one is opportunity cost. How do you get your message out if you have to right. answer absurd marginalia from celebrities all the time? And we put it. Yeah. Putting out the birth certificate, which I realized in hindsight, solved the second problem. It did make it. We didn't have to talk about it anymore. It right. didn't solve the first problem because, you know, as I write in the book, five years, you know, three, five years after we put it out, right before the 2020 election, 2016 election, a poll comes out that shows that 70% of Republicans still believe Barack Obama was born in Kenya. And yeah. now, obviously motivated reasoning is a part of that. People are trolling pollsters. But sure, the sure. fact that actual, real, obvious evidence on an issue now of limited consequence, because he would he was basically a month away from being done president, yeah. still took hold was like a lesson. And what what happened in 2011 became was unique because of Trump. He he yes. was the catalyst that could make it happen in a way that was both dangerous and particularly dangerous for Democrats. And that became a gigantic. And Obama was able to navigate. We've had came up some ways and navigated. He sent me out to Silicon Valley right before I left to like meet with all the smart people. And we brought in a guy named Jason Goldman to take over digital stuff. He's brilliant. And we did a bunch of things. But then like the when Hillary lost, you saw and when you looked under the hood, you saw that one of the driving forces of that was the power of right wing propaganda and disinformation to shift the issue environment in elections. Right. He he is, a, you know, very concerned about this. You guys did an interview with him, his last interview as, as president mm. in one of the very earliest pod save interviews. And you mm. raised the thing of like echo chambers with him. And he, he was, he's like, this is a big deal. I'm going to focus on it, but I'm still kind of optimistic. Let's take a listen to, to part of what he said to you uh, on that last interview that he did as president of the United States, January, 2017 uh, with you on pod save America. Everybody knows that the political culture doesn't work. There's got to be a way in which we can create sort of a virtual public square that <laughs> feels better for people. My suspicion is that, particularly after this last election, there's a, a sizable, maybe still silent majority that just is tired of being mad all the time and would appreciate you know people listening to each other. So. One of the things I'm going to be spending some time thinking about is how, how do you build that civic culture? And, you know, he, he has been spending uh, more than a little time, you know, on that question and more specifically uh, on the questions of misinformation and disinformation and propaganda and conspiracy theories. And, you know, um, I spent a little time with him not that long ago. And my sense of it is that he's both still optimistic because he's Barack Obama, mm -hmm. but that his sense of the depth and scale of the problem is a lot is, is much expanded over the yep. course of the last, he's, as he's looked at it more carefully over the last couple of years. Do you have, I know you don't want to say you're pessimistic, but 
there's still this element, you know, he likes cites research that says, you know, if you just take the five, takes Fox viewers and make them watch CNN, you can move, you start to change their perceptions about things and they're still open to change. And that's what, you know, the democratic, uh, experiments about is, you know, change on the margins. And I don't know, like there's still part, like, I, I just, have, I feel much more dark and apocalyptic about it than, 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 than he's, I mean, he's obviously very smart and he's thinking about this really hard, but I still, it's, it seems to me like it's an even deeper problem than he seems to grasp. And it seems like your book does have its arms around the depth of the problem, the misinformation problem. I'll come back to Trump in a second, but just huh. how deep these tentacles are, what right-wing media is now. Like Fox News was, like you guys were at war with Fox News the first couple of years of the, the Obama mm. administration. It now seems quaint. Like Anita was like, Anita Dunn, your predecessor's communications director, like, well, we're not going to let Fox into the briefings or we're not going to do interviews with Fox News. Mm. I mean, those are like, child's play now you point to facebook but then it's facebook on steroids there's other right-wing television yeah. there's other other online platforms there's all the 4chan 8chan discussion like mm. there's just all this seething right-wing media out there that almost none of us ever see that matters a lot and it's really hard to fight it and root it out i, I it seems to me yeah look i i think the old world in which everyone had a diverse media diet there were respected and trusted putatively objective arbiters of truth, lie, fact, misstatement, who could hold people to account are yeah. over and they're not coming back in our lifetime. And so we as Democrats and a society have to figure out how we fight back explicitly against a very pervasive, very self-interested, very dangerous, very powerful right-wing disinformation and propaganda machine. And my focus is primarily on how Democrats do it, how we right. survive in this environment, how we build up our tools to yep. fight back, how we build up our megaphone. But it is going to require it. We have to acknowledge that reality and all the stakeholders involved, politicians, the, the media, the tech platforms have to come to terms with this new reality, stop being naively nostalgic about what happened before, stop being so putting short-term growth and avarice over the long-term sustainability of your platform or your technology and take this head on in more aggressive right. ways. Because we there's a tendency because this is a problem that hurts Democrats for a lot of people and a lot of institutions in the traditional press to think that they are to be observers, not combatants in this war, right. but but they are the first people who the first people who get rounded up when authoritarianism happens is the press, right? Like no one has a greater interest in yes. surviving this than the people than than that group of people. And to date, and there are exceptions and it has gotten better over the last like few years, particularly since January of 2021. But too often their people are just covering it as if it's ha happening. And I often joke that the media that the the, the Republicans declared war on the media in the 1960s. Right. And the media lost that war in part because they covered it instead of fought it. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's there's some definitely some truth to that for sure, though, you know, if we really wanted to unpack the topic of, you know, how the media has dealt with it being the pinata of the right for so long and what the right way to uh, combat that or or how to what how to deal with that, that would sort of take a entirely separate podcast. But but I do think it's important you know, say here that Battling the Big Lie, your book, isn't mainly a book about media criticism. It's it's a book that's aimed directly at at democratic partisans um, and uh, at at democracy loving humans of of who are not necessarily hardcore partisans. I mean, but you, you do you write in the introduction, you say I wrote Battling the Big Lie as a wake up call and a call to arms for Democrats 
who are sick of losing the message war. And that leads directly to a topic that I really want you to weigh in on, which is what we've seen in the last 10 days since the Mar-a-Lago search and seizure operation, right? I, and I, I just want your expert kind of analysis of this. I was, you know, I knew people would rally to, Republicans would rally to Trump's defense. But you very quickly saw some very extreme rhetoric coming out of almost in out like almost coordinated way. And this is kind of the thing about Trump and, and the right wing media. He's not even president anymore. But like what you saw last, you know, two now it'll be two weeks ago when this podcast comes out, was you know, as soon as the thing happened at Mar-a-Lago, we saw this incredible chorus of Republican elected officials, people like Rick Scott and Tim Scott and Rand Paul, plus all the crazies in the House, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Paul Gosar, lunatic caucus, uh, plus, you know, the, the worse than lunatics, the political arsonists on Fox News and the other right-wing media channels, just, you know, tearing into the DOJ and the FBI and law enforcement more generally. And it was extraordinary and extraordinarily inflammatory uh, as a collective outburst. Um, it wasn't like they were like just singing from the same songbook. It was like they were screeching from the same songbook, like shouting fire in a crowded theater, invoking the Gestapo and the Stasi and totalitarianism. I mean, you know, we've all heard parts of it uh, over the last couple of weeks, but uh, I, I was like, just wanted to try to like do something definitive on this. So I to, to grasp the scale of it. So I asked the staff, uh, over at deadline white house on MSNBC, where I was guest hosting last week, uh, to pull together like the mother of all mashups on this topic. And, and what we ended up with and, and played on television last Friday was long. Uh, so bear with us here, but I think it's instructive. Let's take a listen. This is the deep state's revenge. What they've been doing to President Trump is political persecution. We'd be better off to think of these people as wolves. Uh, wolves, you know, who want to eat you. Uh, wolves who want to dominate. The way our federal government has gone, it's, it's like what we thought about the Gestapo. This is Gestapo crap, and it will not stand. That is Gestapo Stasi tactics. The FBI right now is the Gestapo. The FBI is the Gestapo. This is some third world bullshit right here. Let me say it again. Third world bullshit. The FBI and the uh, Department of Justice are going to give Trump a fair and impartial firing squad. Is there an effort by the national security state to stoke violence in a civil war? No American president has ever explicitly declared war on his own population. You cannot weaponize our institutions for political gain. That, that is the destruction of democracy. Do I know that the boxes of material they took from Mar-a-Lago, that they won't put things in those boxes to entrap him? How do we know? Who is to say in this kind of case that some of the documents supposedly seized were not planted there to begin with? What the FBI is probably doing is planning evidence, which is what they did during the Russia hoax. They raided our president's home. There is no going back from this, everybody. This is the worst attack on this republic in modern history, period. It's disgusting. They've declared war on us, and now it's game on. So, I mean, man, I won't even like try to name all the people, but anybody you can think of under the sun who is important on the right is in that supercut. And Dan, you know, putting aside uh, what I'm sure for you is my is the same as my natural revulsion at that kind of rhetoric. I know already because I am a devoted message box reader that you think the Republicans have mishandled this moment politically. But I just want to hear what you have to say about 
the ways in which they mishandled it, but also the ways in which they're mishandling illustrates some of the kind of power that they have because they are so coordinated in terms of how they message stuff like this and try to stir up people's anger. So I think the way to think about this is to try to understand the question of how is it that the party who attacks Democrats for defunding the police, who you know flies Blue Lives Matters flags at their rallies, ended up within like seven minutes of defunding the FBI and calling them Nazis and Gestapo. And so there's a couple of forces at play there. One is just people rally to Trump support because we live in a era of negative partisanship. So you were if you're if something happens to your people, you will rally to it, right? So this was invariably going to help Trump in the short term. Right. Two, like they're like they're every Democrat I talked to was like, why are Republicans so coordinated? Why can't Democrats were everywhere? We got AOC, we got Manchin. Why can't we say the same thing? Right. No one is writing down defund the FBI. Gestapo. No, that's not on a set of talking points from the RNC or Kevin McCarthy's office. What the Republicans have is because they exist in a homogenous, hermetically sealed media ecosystem is they are all operating with the same set of media incentives. And that media incentive, what what everyone, attention is is the coin of the realm. It is political power in this media environment. The way you get attention is you go viral. The way you go viral and get attention in the Republican in the right wing media ecosystem is to be as outrageous and outlandish as possible. So everyone is one upping each other. Oh, you said investigate the FBI. I'm say defund the FBI. You said that they were jackbooted thugs. I'm gonna call them Nazis. And you like they're all operating with the same incentive structures. So that gets you there. No one told them to say this. Right. And then the third part of this is a way to understand Republican media strategy, which I think was best embodied by. It's something that Steve Bannon once said, which is their strategy is to, quote, flood the zone with shit. Yep. So you throw everything out there, right? Yep. It was planted. No, it was really declassified. It was declassified and they planted it. They stole my passports. They, they broke into my safe, right. all of that. And you just throw so much shit out there. And it does, that does two things. One, it gives every one of your voters some thin read of permission structure to hang on to. Right. I like this is weird. I kind of like don't really like nuclear secrets in hanging around in a, you know, a storage room with extra bottles of margarita mix. But maybe the FBI did plan it. So I'll stick with them. But it also and this is a huge part of the power of right wing propaganda is one of the goals is to just confuse at the large swath of the electorate, the ones who decide elections that don't pay as close attention to politics. There's so much shit out there. Everyone's yelling. Right, I, who do right, I trust? Right. I don't trust Democrats versus Republicans and people tune out and tuning out is to their advantage. And that's how we ended here. Sure. But, but there's this other thing, right? So one of the things about last week was you had all these very extreme voices attacking the federal law enforcement. And there was the, the incident that happened at the FBI field office in Cincinnati. There was this moment where people were like, maybe they're going too far. And I mean, Republicans were saying that. And there were some yeah. like, you know, like McConnell, Lindsey Graham kind of trying to like pull back a little bit, just be like, still be going after Garland, but not saying things like Gestapo, Nazis, yeah. Stasi, whatever. And then there was this reporting that said that the Trump people had said, you guys should back off because we don't really know what's about to come. This could be bad, right? And here's what I thought was so interesting about that, Dan, that goes to your, to, to your point, or at least raises a question about it to me. It wasn't like they just softened their rhetoric. Some of them did and some of them didn't. Some softened a little bit. Some just kept going all the way. Tucker Carlson's still like, you know, saying Joe Biden's like declared war on his own people, et cetera, et cetera. But here's what also happened was all of a sudden overnight, everybody in the Republican Party is talking about the IRS 
and the abuses of the IRS, like everybody. Let's just play his recount supercut. Here's like all the voices, bunch of Republicans, Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, Ted Cruz, Lindsey Graham, Jim Jordan. Everybody's talking about the IRS saying all the same shit overnight. Chaos at the IRS. Like, is the IRS gearing up for war in our country? This is making the IRS with Gentlewoman's time has expired. Gentlewoman is no longer. Those IRS agents are designed to come after you. This is bigger than the British arm. I'm going to try to rescind the spending for the IRS and send it to the border. Who are these thousands of IRS bureaucrats? Who are they going to harass? They'll be working remotely, drinking their fancy coffee, going after the guy who's helping kids and has the side business. Do you really trust this administration, the IRS? to be fair. Kevin McCarthy at the end there. And you know, it's the fancy coffees that worries me most that Jim Jordan said. <laughs> um, but how does that happen? If it's not command and control, how does it happen? Like the 67,000 IRS agents talking point, which is bullshit to begin with, but like it just, it was like they flipped a switch and that was the thing, a way to talk about government overreach. I mean, Chuck Grassley was on saying like the IRS was going to send armed strike forces out to people who had passed through income, like armed with what he wanted to say was, I think, either AK-47s or AR-15s. Instead, he said AR-47s. But like that, like, yeah, Chuck Grassley is like 114 years old. I'm surprised yeah. he got any of the words out. But how does that happen if it's not command and control? It's not really command and control. It's that there's sort of a bat signal, which is you have, <laughs> you know, huge media figures on the right who people are emulating, in part because they are seeking their love, they're seeking retweets from them, they're seeking shares. And so if a handful of people, whether it could be Tucker Carlson, it could be Sean Hannity, it could be Ben Shapiro, it could be Dan Bongino, move the topic to that conversation, they will do it. I mean, obviously, in many ways, the Republicans are all lemmings, but also they're also not all idiots either, right? We're like, right. they believe, like Joe Biden just signed into law a piece of legislation that is very popular with a significant portion of their working class base. Right. And so what you get it, that's something that now we're staring down an election. They've seen all the political environment change. How are we going to change that? Yeah. We, this is the part we want to talk about. Like this is still news of the day still does drive these things. That was the news of the day. The best Republican message in their mind is IRS jackbooted flags. You really you don't have to change too much other than just change like three letters from FBI to IRS and you're right there. And so that stuff still does happen, but it, I, my only point always to Democrats is it is not as incredibly coordinated as people think. It is just because they're all oper- they all live in the same world listening to the same people. And so that can send them sometimes saying things that are good for them, not often, but it can happen, and also saying a bunch of insane things that are probably bad for their interests in the long run. One of the things that we we all we all overlearned the mistakes our mistakes in the past, right? And there's all this stuff that that people like you, people like me, certainly people in my business. Like, man, there's no, uh, we, we, we've we reached various conclusions about the Trump world. Like there was just no way Donald Trump would get more votes in 2020 than he got in 2016. He didn't reach out across the aisle. He didn't build, a, yeah. he didn't do any addition to his coalition, blah, blah, blah. And then he gets more votes, right? There's a world where people look at what's happening with what the Republicans are saying about law enforcement and the fact that they're obviously wandering down a very dark hallway with Donald Trump. They don't know what this investigation is going to mm. yield. There could be like horrible shit, Right. Um, on, I mean, on objectively, there could be horrible shit. Yeah. And so we all assume that they're making a mistake by being this um, incendiary, riling up the, the the dark angels in the country about law enforcement that could lead to violence, the, the kind of inflaming talk of civil war, et cetera, et cetera. Is there some possibility that it, once again, we're just looking at this through too co- conventional a prism and that in some weird, totally fucked up, dark, dystopic way that we're going to look up a few months from now and go, yeah, the country's actually in the middle of a civil war, but Republicans are winning. 
Because Trump thinks yeah. that. I mean, yes, absolutely. I mean, we, we, we the Republican Party is in the thrall of a radical, right-wing, deeply dangerous fringe. The problem for our that is, that fringe is shrinking as a as a percentage of the country. It is they're getting older and uh, they're losing parts of their coalition. But the problem for democracy is that fringe is dramatically overrepresented in the electoral college, the Senate map, and gerrymandered house districts. And so, it is very possible they're going to do all these things that are deeply dangerous, deeply offensive to large majorities of the country, and still come out ahead. That is very very possible. If this is is election that is if their voters turn if they if their discussion of if you know sort of their extremist message turns out their voters at a higher rate than our discussion of their extremist message turns out our voters then they will win like this and there is actually polling in Morning Consult today on the day we're recording this which suggests that since the raid Republican enthusiasm has gone up and it mm-hmm. is very like we're within the margin of error with Democratic enthusiasm but this has been a rallying cry. For, for something has changed in the last few weeks. You could maybe say it was IRA. You could say it was this, yeah, yeah. but yeah. something has happened. And so, like we, like I, I think we should always, 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 always test every proposition because we are in a completely unprecedented era of politics. There is no midterm you can compare this one to. That yeah. I don't think you can. You know, you want to be like, is this the ninth? Is Biden in 2024? Is this 1984? Is it 1988? Is it 2012? Yeah, no, it's something totally different. Way, yeah. And so anything can happen, and we got to basically be looking forward, not backwards, for our modeling about what to look for. I pray for the sake of the country that we're not in the middle of a disinformation, hate speech, death spiral, because <laughs> sometimes it feels like that is like you know, the incentive structures you talk about. Like if they yeah. win on the back of this message, what happens next? Uh, Dan Pfeiffer, yeah. you're awesome. Go do whatever important thing you have to do elsewhere. And uh, and then we'll get you back on again and we can talk even more about Dan's incredible book that everyone who hasn't bought it already, actually, if you bought it, you should buy it, just buy another copy. Um, because, you know, who, what, what better, what, what better Labor Day gift uh, mm-hmm. to give just to your favorite Labor Day enjoying uh, parent, friend, <laughs> family member than battling the big lie how Fox, Facebook, and the MAGA media are destroying America? The Dan Piper. Awesome. Thank you so much. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Dan Pfeiffer for being with us again. Remember to pick up Dan's new book, Battling the Big Lie, How Fox, Facebook, and the MAGA Media Are Destroying America. And if you liked this episode, please subscribe to On High Water and share us, rate us, review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell on High Water. Matthew Kaplowitz is our video editor. Megan Burney is our producer and engineer. Zoya Saroy is our researcher. And Marshall Eisen, the one and only, the truth, the light, the heat, is our executive producer.